you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We've been letting Luke kind of bring us through this Advent season. And today, today, well, today's the day we look at the birth of Jesus, but, you know, that's on the 25th. And so technically we're still in Advent. The 12 days of Christmas are coming. Um, but Luke chapter 2 is where we will be. We'll be starting in verse 1. And once you find that, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's all stand together as I read this passage. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So as we said, we've been allowing Luke to kind of take us through this Advent season, and when Luke tells the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, kind of like a good storyteller, like, I want to tell you about this, but I've got to start with this. And so he starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist in the life of, of Jesus' ministry, John will go first. Jesus will be superior, but John will go first. And he will foreshadow all the things that Jesus will do, all the way up to suffering and dying. John will do it first. He will be born first, he'll preach first, and he will suffer first. But Jesus will follow, but Jesus will be greater. But Luke says, if I'm going to tell this story, i got to start with them. And the way Luke tells the birth of Jesus is Luke structures the birth of Jesus. Whenever an event happens, a, 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 a vignette takes place, at the end of the vignette, someone sings a song. So Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're told about the baby that, that's going to be born. Elizabeth is going to have a, a baby, and when the baby's born, Zachariah, who's been mute for nine months, he bursts out into song, this beautiful song that we'd be visited by God, that, and this wonderful song that he sings and he prophesies. And then Mary is visited by the same angel, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but in this podunk town of Nazareth. 
And not a priest, not a, a man priest who's trained his whole life for faith, but this young maiden, and she has faith, and she believes. And when she hears, and when she goes to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's baby jumps in her womb, then Mary sings a song. And she sings a song about this, that the days are coming where there's going to be a reversal of fortune. That the humble will be lifted up, and the, the, the rich and the wealthy will go away empty, but God has favored the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, right? Or he will do it for you. And that's Mary's song is about humbling as she humbles herself. And today, so, and at the end of the narrative, we have Simeon who has been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah. And, uh, and, and Jesus comes and he holds Jesus and he sings a song, a beautiful song. And today we want to look at a song. It's a short song. It's a short song, but it's a powerful song. And we want to look at what Luke is doing with this song at this point in the birth narrative. And I want to kind of focus on this song, but in order to focus on the song, you got to tell the story. And so we'll start in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Um, it can sound a little bit like a flyover verse, but let's read it and let's see what we have for us today. We want to get to the song of the angels, but in order to understand the song of the angels, we have to hear why they sing that song. So you guys with me today? You with me this morning? All right. I, lo I love this. This is, I was realizing that I always like to say like I have, fa I, I don't like to say that I have favorite passages in the Bible because um, it's all good, right? They're all great passages. But this one actually, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's so good. And it doesn't need to be Christmas in order to understand it. That's the beautiful thing. Like you could preach this in August and it still has this, what Luke is trying to do here is profound, and I want us to understand it, especially as we go into our Christmas season and Christmas morning. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, you're like, I don't see the profundity, okay? It's a flyover verse, right? You're like, I just, just want to learn how to, how to pronounce Quirinius, that's all I'm trying to do if I'm reading this. But if you are in the first century and you hear this line, this is what you hear. There's something else going on here that Luke is using to tell the story of Jesus. So he mentioned Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus came after Julius Caesar on the heels of many wars of the Republic. It was a Republic, and there were many kind of rival factions, many wars in the Republic. And after an age of wars and catastrophes, it was Augustus who brought peace, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Augustus, most historians, and, and in the day, it was Augustus who was the one who kind of put, put an end to all of these warring factions within the Republic. And Augustus and those around him, they, they called Augustus uh, Soter, which is the word savior. And they called also Augustus Curios, which means Lord. And in his degrees to the province, in his decrees to the provinces, he would refer to himself as a son of God. Humbly speaking. I mean, you, you get the idea. Someone's rotary phone is going off. I'm just kidding. No, that's good. Oh, that's good. My mom, of all people, brings the rotary phone. I'm just kidding. That's good. Um, there, it's good. Yeah, our, the Coeur d'Alene campus from Taft Avenue Community Church is here. So anyway, that's, that's fun. Um, anyway, 
Now, here's the deal with, with, Rome, with Roman uh, Caesars. Roman Caesars, after Augustus, they, they, were, they were treated as these kind of semi-divine, even while they were alive, um, these kind of living gods among men. They called themselves Son of God, uh, Savior, Lord. Now, do those words sound familiar to anybody? Like, if you read the Old Testament, like, these are all the things that God calls himself, who's Lord? God is Lord. Who's Savior? God is Savior. And then, who, the Son of God, like, who has the right to call themselves the Son of God or the Son of the gods or something like that? And this idea of the veneration of Roman leaders after their death, they were seen as, as servants of the gods, but, but, but Augustus, his name was actually Octavian, but after he, put, after he brought the Roman peace, he decided to call himself Augustus, which means worthy of reverence. Like, has anybody self-named themselves something like that? Like, you don't get to choose your nickname. Like, other people kind of choose your nickname for you. But, you know, like, do you call yourself, you know, you just call me, just call me the, the, the reverend. Like, I don't, I don't like to be called reverend. I don't know why they call pastors reverends, but, like, we're not reverend. Don't revere, right? Or the idea that, but he called himself Augustus, the one worthy of reverence, majestic, venerable. And upon his death, the Roman Senate made it official and enlisted his name as a new god in the pantheon. This was, this was what Roman Caesars did. Look, if you, if you had an army and you controlled all of the world, all of the known world, you might get a little prideful, right? And they were. And the Romans were thugs. And this is the... the look... If you go, you can go, um, and I got back from a trip to Turkey, and you go to Turkey, and there's this place like Pergamum, the city of Pergamum. It's on this big hill. And when the Romans conquered Pergamum, it's in, in Turkey, in the northern part of Turkey, um, what they did was they went to the top of the highest hill where all the temples of the gods were. And whatever temple was at the top of the hill, they scraped it off its foundation, and they built a temple to themselves. Like, that's the Roman mindset. And everywhere you go, everywhere you go, when you look at all these, all these cities and, and all this archaeological digs, what the Romans did is whatever city they conquered, they went to the top of the highest hill where all the temples were, they scraped the foundation of the biggest one, and they built one to themselves. That's what Rome did. Okay, so you got to understand, when Luke is writing this, this is the world that Luke is writing into. Now listen to what Augustus is doing. It says this, that it, the, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay, the word is used three times in there, registered. And when this idea of registering people, that some translations say, maybe your translation says there was a census. Okay, um, but the term that's used there, apographo, is, that, is used almost exclusively in the ancient world for registering people for the purpose of collecting tax and tribute from them. Now, you might think about your taxes. We pay taxes here in the United States of America, right? And you might think of your taxes as like it's a mandatory payment. Like, you've got to, you have, I, I got to pay my fair share. I got to pay what I owe to, to make sure that, that streets are paved and that, you know, there's fire departments and police departments and things like that, okay? You pay your fair share. But we don't oftentimes think of our taxes as like paying tribute to our leaders, Okay, you, don't, you probably don't think that way. But in Rome, the idea was your taxes 
would, would not only pay for public things, but it would also pay for the, the, you know, your, your kings and your rulers to, to live lavishly, but also it would be seen as a tribute to them. And this idea that this guy who says, I am the venerable one, worthy of reverence, I'm going to count the known world so that they can pay tribute to me. That's verses 1 and 2 of Luke. This guy, Octavian, decided to call himself Augustus, and he decided to count the known world so that he could receive tributes from every person on the face of the planet. That's how this passage starts. Okay, you got to keep that in mind. In order to understand the angel's song, you got to understand verses 1 and 2. Because God is going to say, I have something to say about that. And so let's keep going, let's keep going. So he goes to all, he counts the known world, and Luke is doing something here in the first verse. So Caesar, who deems himself one worthy of reverence, who calls himself son of God and Lord, and commanding that all the people of the known inhabited world be counted so that they can pay tribute, that is the world in which Luke is telling his story. And it's hard to get away from the contrasts in this passage. The contrast of privilege and the contrast of humility. Between overt and intimidating power and the quiet, self-emptying power of God. But there's a conflict that is brewing. And Luke wants to set the stage for the brewing of that conflict. And that conflict is going to be, it's going to begin here, but it's going to play out throughout the gospel, and it's going to culminate between these two powers, the power, the power of might and violence and raw political military power comes against the true king. And what will happen? And that is what Luke is setting up here. Now, Joseph, look at verse 3. So what happens? All go to be registered, each to his own town. Look at verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went with, with Mary, who was betrothed, who was with child. And, um, and while they came, there was time, the time came for her to give birth. So Joseph, okay, the, the birth father of Jesus, is clearly subject to the new law. It requires him to travel 100 miles south from Nazareth in the northern part of Galilee up to the hill country of Bethlehem. He and Mary have a, formed a family unit, even though they're not married, they're betrothed, it's legal in that sense. And Joseph travels to his relative's home, his ancestral home, where he probably would have had cousins and aunts and uncles, and he goes to the town of Bethlehem. Now, um, I was told by my wife not to ruin Christmas for anybody, okay? But I do love the Bible, and so I'm going to, there's some things in the traditional Christmas story that do not necessarily match up with the Bible, and what we know about the world that the Bible is written in. So, I'm not meaning to ruin Christmas, okay? But bear with me for just a moment, okay? So, um, in many traditional Christmas plays and the Christmas story, the traditional story, there are some elements that are added for dramatic effect, okay? 
And so, for example, often, here's, here's and not, not if this is the traditional Christmas story, okay? Often in that image, okay, Mary and Joseph are traveling. She is riding a donkey while he is walking, right? Okay, it doesn't say anything about that here, okay? There's an apocryphal gospel account called the Proto-Evangelum of James that, that kind of gives that picture, but that's not in here. Um, and also this, that, that Mary is like great with child, as she travels, right? She's getting off the donkey, right? And, and there she is. She makes it, right? She makes it down. And that when they arrive in Bethlehem that night, they arrive in Bethlehem that night, and the baby's coming. Like, she's in transition, right? She, it's coming. The baby's coming. And they're knocking on doors. Is there any place that we can stay? And they're like, no, there's no room. You know, like, and he, they're knocking on doors, and they're, going, they're frantically looking for a place to stay. And finally someone says, well, I have a barn out back. You can go out back, right? So they, they find shelter in a stable, where Joseph, you know, gathers warm cloths and, like, gets ready, and he's like, all right, put, you know, like, they're alone in the world. Is it, does this sound, I mean, and then there's a, there's a kid who, who plays the role of the innkeeper who's like, there's no room in the inn, and you're like, we're so proud of our son for playing the guy who turns away the nine-month pregnant lady. Yeah, um, so all that to say, okay, couple things about this. Now, that, that story, there's something about that story that is, that is kind of cool in the sense that a story like that kind of paints the picture of it's like God is coming into the world and the world is totally unaware, right? There's something about that picture of like God versus the world. And everybody, nobody knows it's just Mary and Joseph versus the world and God versus the world and the baby shows up. But it, it, in some ways, that's not the picture that Luke is painting, okay? It is God versus, but it's not necessarily God versus the world. So here's a couple things. Here's a couple things. Um, one, they probably arrived in time. Like they probably didn't arrive the night that she was going to give birth. Like even in the ancient world, they knew when babies came. Right? Like even today, you can't fly when you're nine months pregnant. Like they knew. They knew when babies came. So it's very likely, even in the passage, in, in 2.6, it says, while they were in that place, the time came to have the baby. And literally, it says, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. In other words, they probably arrived in plenty of time. Okay? Again, I don't want, I don't want to ruin Christmas for anybody. Okay? But, and where did they stay? Like, it's Joseph's hometown. He's probably got a cousin or an aunt or an uncle somewhere in that town, and they have houses, okay? Yes, you're like, you're looking at me like, you're making this stuff up, Pastor Craig. I'm not. It says it's his ancestral hometown. He has relatives. But where does he stay? Now, here's the deal, okay? The ESV, what I read, follows the King James Version as well as the New Revised Standard Version when it says there was... They, they, were, they, they laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn, okay? Now, that word inn, the NIV and the CEB, they made a translation correction in 2011 that really was long overdue. Rather than inn, they translated the word there, that, which is the Greek word kataluma, as guest room. So elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples eat the Lord's Supper, they eat it in a kataluma, 
Like when Jesus gathers his 12 the night before he's going to be killed, they have, they have the Passover meal, they have it in a kataluma. What's a kataluma? It's an upper room. It's a guest room. And also, just, okay, I'm full geek mode here, okay? In the story of the Good Samaritan that Luke tells, right, when he, he finds the man that's, that's dead on the, the Samaritan finds the man who's like left for dead on the road, he puts him on his, on his mule, and he takes him, he takes him to, uh, the, the word is, he takes him to a pondikeon. That's an inn. That's a hotel. But a kataluma is an upper room. So what's going on here? Where do they stay? So, and plus this idea, so the, the idea is that this is, there, the city, the picture that's being painted is, the city is overwhelmed with people who are coming in for the census. Joseph's family have people in there. They already have people in the upper room. Mary is pregnant, and she's going to have a baby. You don't do that in the upper room. I mean, gravity, things flow down, right? And if, Okay, if you've been present at a birth. I'm just saying, everybody, like, go on the low level. If we need anything, it'll be much easier to get it and to bring it in. So stay on the low level where, where the animals might be, okay? So, but the, and the other thing is this, if you know anything about Middle Eastern hospitality, the image of a nine-month pregnant woman going through town desperately seeking lodging only to be turned away is preposterous, if somebody came walking through your neighborhood she's, and this lady's having a baby, you don't think you would at least be like, no, come in, let's call 911, let's do something, let's gather. Like, this is totally foreign in the ancient world, the city of Bethlehem. Like, let's give the city of Bethlehem a little credit here, right? They wouldn't have turned away. Anyway, all this to say, okay, very likely they would have come, they would have come in time, they would have stayed with Joseph's relatives, she would have given birth, humble means for sure but not emergency. Joseph probably was not like rolling up his sleeves like, okay, Mary, here we go. Like she would have probably been surrounded by the women of the village and the women of Joseph's family. I mean, one of the central stories in the Old Testament is Abraham and the three visitors, and the lesson is you never know who's coming to your door. It could be God, and it is in this case. The image that Luke is giving is not God versus the world. Because there are people who greet the Lord Jesus, but they are humble. And it's of humble means. It's not God versus the world, it's God versus the proud. The birth of Jesus, there are people ready for the birth of God's Son. And they come when called. They are ready. They come, but they are the humble, not the proud. The proud are too busy counting people so they can receive taxes. So Mary is likely surrounded by people, and God is not against the world. He's against the proud. And they, the, who are the particularly humble in this case? It's the shepherds. Look at 2.8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They're not even the day shepherds. They're the night shepherds, right? Like shepherds are not the, it's not the most glamorous of, of, of crews. And, but the, the day shepherds, they're asleep in their beds. It's the night crew that, ha, that hear about this. It's the humble of the humble. It also probably tells us that if there are shepherds out in the fields at night, it probably isn't December. It's probably spring, maybe summer. 
like the, the birth of Jesus hasn't been celebrated, was started to be celebrated on the 25th in the third century. So Jesus was probably born sometime in the spring or the summer. Again, I don't mean to ruin Christmas for anybody. I just love the Bible, okay? Um, all right. So it does say that um, the so an angel of the Lord appeared to them, verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the angel Lord doesn't say it's Gabriel. Every other time Zechariah got Gabriel, Mary got Gabriel, we can only assume that this is the same angel, okay? It's a third angelic appearance. It may or may not be Gabriel. I'd probably say probably Gabriel. They're afraid. Of course they're afraid. Everybody who sees an angel is afraid. And the angel says, do not be afraid. That's standard angel talk. And then he starts to do this. He says, I bring you good news. Do you know what happened when Caesar Augustus won a victory? He would send out a decree of good news. Euangelia. And the angel says, hey, good news. Good news of great joy. This is going to be a clue to us that something's going on. And it's going to be good news not just for the Romans, it's going to be good news for all the people. All the people. And then he says, today in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior and Lord. These are the terms used in the Roman government for the deified Caesar. They're the terms that the Caesar co-opted for himself and that many in, the, in Rome had taken up for the Caesar. Caesar is Savior and Lord. He's mighty in battle. There's good news that he's brought peace. But if you're in Israel and you know the scriptures, only God is Savior. Only God. Only Yahweh is Lord. And in verse 10, the, people, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy will be for all the people unto you born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. It's shorthand for saying king, like the Messiah who was going to come was going to be king. Messiah means anointed one, and when you need to translate that into Greek, it becomes Christos, Christ. So when you read in your New Testaments, you read that Jesus is Christ. What you need, when you read, you should also hear Messiah. When you see Christ, Jesus is Messiah, the Lord. And when you hear Messiah, you need to think king. So the passage starts with a guy who is claiming to be venerable, the savior of the world, the Lord, the one worthy of veneration. And now this angel comes and says, hey, I have good news. There's one who's born today who, this, in the city of David who's a king. David's a king. In the city of David who is Christ king, the Lord, king Kurios. And this is right in line with what's been going on in Luke up to this point. The angel shows, Gabriel shows up, gives an announcement of a miraculous and special birth. They say, do not fear, there's a sign given. But then there's a break in the pattern, and this is where our song takes place. There's an appearance, a multitude of the heavenly host. Look down in verse, where are we at? Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly 
host, praising God. Now, what is a heavenly host? Um, it sounds like a really nice mater d, right? The heavenly host. Oh, here's your seat right here. I'm the heavenly host. Um, a heavenly host. So the word, the word for host there is the word stratia, which most other places is translated as army. What happens is there's a heavenly army that shows up. It's an army of angels. And you get in this sense this important break. Remember that this passage starts with Caesar, the one worthy of reverence who calls himself Son of God and Lord, commanding that all people of all the known inhabited world be counted so that he can receive tribute from them. It's almost as if Luke is painting a picture of a human ruler who is overreaching, an empire that is overreaching in its power and influence and violence. And so what does God do? He sends an army down to straighten things out. And these angels show up, and they're an army. And what do they do? They sing. They sing! Because that's what a good army does. When you are in charge and you know you dominate, you don't need to pull your weapons out. You just sing and announce. And what do they sing? Glory to God. Actually, it's split. It says glory to God in the highest. And you're like, in the highest what? It's glory in the highest to God. Like glory is this word. Glory is this word like it means weighty. It means worthy. It means reverential. It means, that the, the, it means famous. It means someone who is uh, who's well known. Someone who has a good reputation. Glory. And what do the angels say? This army shows up and they say glory to God alone. God in the highest. Who is worthy of glory? Caesar? No. Maybe some, like, they, maybe he's done some good, right? But the highest glory, if you want to give tribute to anybody, don't give it to the Caesar. Give a tribute to God. Glory to God in the highest. And Luke is painting this picture of, his, of God's son being born into the world where there is a grabbing for power. There's a grabbing for influence. There's a grabbing for reputation. Does anybody know a world like that? Gosh, I can't think of anything right now. But Luke paints this picture of a world that is overreaching in its desire to be affirmed. We are so awesome. And God says, I have something to say about that. You know, for me, I feel like, um, yeah, you just, you watch, whether it's politicians or whether it's commercials on TV and the claims for products or, or people or influencers on social media or pundits or whatever, you get a sense that everybody's grabbing for glory of some kind. And as we go into Christmas, look, Glory in the highest to God. In the highest to God. There is no competitor. And, I, you know, there's definitely times where you just see someone on TV or whatever, 
and they are just, it's all about them, the bragging. You just want an angel army to show up and say, hey, we got something to say about this. And the thing is, the time for angel armies is gone. The next person who's going to show up to say, I got something to say about that is Jesus. And we wait. We wait patiently because we live in a world where we know, we know, glory to God in the highest. And it means that we are in a humble position. And we have to check our own ambitions. We have to check our own power. We have to check all that because we know that we only, we are only blessed because God has allowed us to be blessed. And we live in a world where one day Jesus will show up and say, I have something to say about that. And he will be surrounded by an army of angels and they will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is he and he alone. And we can, we can miss Jesus as a baby, mild, humble, but there will be a day where Jesus will come and he will say, I have something to say. And he will be accompanied by an angel army. And they will say, worthy is he to receive power and glory and dominion and majesty. And he will make all things right. And the humble will be exalted. And the proud will be brought low. That day has not yet come. Has it? It has not. And so we live, we live in a place where we live as citizens of God's kingdom, having faith in Jesus, that he would one day come and make all things right. It's not my job to make all things right. There are some things I can make right, but ultimately it is up to God to come and to make all things right, and we eagerly await that day where he will reveal himself in that way. And when we come to Christmas, we come not only in the season of Advent to wait for his birth, we come waiting for his return, where he will make all things right. I love this passage. I love this passage. I love the idea that God just says, hey, let's send the army. Let's send the army to let them know. To let them know. We, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of you, Rome. We're not afraid of anybody down there. We will come and we will make it all right, but we will do it our way. And that culminates in the Gospel of Luke. When the powerful and the influential and the politically savvy they conspire together to put to death the Son of God. And Jesus lets them. The Son of God lets them. Only three days later, to show his true power and glory and to raise from the dead. And we're here. We're here because Jesus rose from the dead. A little Easter with Christmas, right? Right? We, we don't have to separate those two things. But that's why we're here. We're here because God's power is real, and we believe it, and we believe it's, it's, His power is active in this world, but there is a season of waiting that we have. And so we pray that God would make right what He can now and what He would now so that we might one day see Him come in glory. And if that's before, before I, if I, have to, if I pass before that day, then I will, I will pass eagerly expecting that He would come at any moment up until the day that I go waiting for him to make all things right. And like the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what they say to, to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, look, our God is able to save, you, save us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, 
We're not bowing to you. And that is our posture here. We look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel is this idea. Ezekiel, he is, as we've been looking at Ezekiel, Ezekiel t- tells the nation, look, you've been, you've been allowing glory for others other than God. You've been idolatrous. And so we check ourselves in a season of buying and giving and all of those things to say, glory to God in the highest. And we check our hearts to make sure that we are giving only glory to our great God and his son Jesus. Let's pray. Let's all invite the worship team to come on up. Father, we come today. We recognize that there are that Caesar Augustus is a real person who demands allegiance and tribute. And there are brands and governments and politicians and leaders who demand that kind of glory. And even people in our own lives that um, presume that kind of glory. And we simply want to check ourselves. Father, if we are one who is looking for glory, we pray, retask us. And Father, if we are one who is swayed by those who look for glory, we pray, focus us on you. Glory in the highest to you, and you alone, Father. We thank you that we can come together today to sing praises, to join in the angel song, and to sing of your glory and your praise, and to thank you, Jesus, for your self-emptying love that has shown us the way to real glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.